Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone. Excited to be here with you and those watching online. Um, like Bill and Milt have both mentioned, today is a big day. It's the last day, like we said in our sermon series called Reordered. So we spent uh, nearly seven months walking through the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you've just joined us for the first time today, your timing is actually perfect because you'll get a summary of the last seven months of teaching in one sermon. Uh, so congrats on impeccable timing. But if you have been with us since the beginning, you might remember that we opened the series with the passage that we'll actually be in today. Uh, and you can go and turn there. It's the final verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. So as you turn there, um, and as we reflect on all that God has done over these last seven months, I must confess that I have a consistently conflated heart. Two inconsistencies live in me at the same time. I believe God can do anything. That his gospel can transform and change everything about anyone. And yet, if I'm honest, at the same time, I still limit what I expect God to do in my life or in the lives of others. So in my conflated heart, I am at the same time both shocked and also not at all surprised at what we've seen God do in the lives of our CBC family through this series. Stories of how Jesus has been setting people free from the guilt and shame of their sin. Stories of how the Holy Spirit has empowered our family to take steps of obedience and faithfully living for Jesus in forgiving others, in repenting from sin, and being more bold in sharing Christ. Even seeing people confess belief in Jesus for the first time. It's been amazing to see. And it actually reminds me of the C.S. Lewis story, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody out there? Uh, it's Jesus in Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> but in that story, there's a group of young kids who find their way through this magical wardrobe into a new world, a land called Narnia. But they soon discover that it's very cold and very dark there. And so they meet this uh, guy, Mr. Beaver, who tells them of a wicked witch and the curse that's made Narnia so cold and dark. But he also tells them of Narnia's hope, the great lion Aslan. He, and he knows, Mr. Beaver knows, Aslan will save them, will defeat the darkness and bring forth the light. And Mr. Beaver comforts the children with this encouragement, saying that although the cold and darkness seem to be prevailing, that they will not last because Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. I love that. And it's true because Jesus, our hope, our saving lion, is on the move here at CBC changing lives and driving out the darkness. And I shouldn't be as surprised as my mixed-up heart is because that's what he does. Because Jesus has been on the move ever since the beginning, even here in the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches the crowd not how to live to get into the kingdom of God, but how those in the kingdom of God are to live. So as we pick up the sermon here at the tail end, we remember that Jesus has been calling his hearers to make a choice either to trust and follow him or to turn away. And he uses a series of twos in illustrating his point. Two paths, one to life and one to death. Two trees, one with good fruit and one with poison. And in our passage today, two houses with two foundations, one of sand 
and one of rocks. So let's uh, read together as we conclude our series. So follow along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. So let's go back. Let's start in verse 24, where Jesus tells the crowds, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. So let's unpack that. When Jesus said, everyone who hears these words, well, what words is he talking about? Well, it's the words that we've been studying for the last seven months. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that changed everything about everything. So let's go back to those words and do a quick recap of this reordering message that Jesus spoke. We're going to go through seven months in seven minutes. So hold on tight. (laughs) Turn with me back to chapter five, starting in verses one and two. The sermon story opens this way. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So let's try, if we can, to place ourselves in the story, in that moment, as if we were in the crowd that day. So that means you need to erase in your mind what you know about Jesus already, like who he is, the cross, the resurrection, all the other things we know today. Erase that and imagine that all you know is all that the crowd that day would have known. So here's this rabbi, this carpenter's son, Mary's kid from Nazareth. And perhaps you'd been a part of the crowd that had seen Jesus before. You'd you'd heard some of his teaching already on the kingdom and truths of God. Maybe you'd even seen him do miracles like healing the sick and suffering or liberating those oppressed by demons. But at the very least, you'd heard of Jesus. And now you've gathered before him with a host of other people, undoubtedly a mix of Jews and Gentiles, of religious elites and society's outcasts. And you pulled out your lawn chair, sat it down on the grass, and you're willing to see what all the fuss is about. And then Jesus comes forward, opens his mouth, and no one in the crowd that day was prepared for what happened next. He begins to change everything about everything. So you can follow along with your finger with me and your Bible. We're going to move quick. But he begins a reordering of all of life, starting in the Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, by reordering what it means to be blessed. Not in a life marked by fame and fortune and followers, but rather humility and helping others and holiness. In verses 13 through 16, Jesus reorders their life's purpose 
that it's not about climbing social ladders and achieving their dreams or making a name for themselves, but to live as salt and light in this world, to serve and bless others to, to the praise of God alone. In verses 17 through 20, the call to reorder his place in their lives, that he is the fulfillment of God's law. Jesus is God's word living and breathing in front of them. He is no mere teacher, no prophet, no mere priest, no suggestion maker or advice column or lifestyle coach. He reordered his place in their lives as the very word and authority of God. And then Jesus continues, verses 21 through 48, through 48, and reordering their relationships to God and to one another through living with holy integrity from the heart that loving God and each other is more than just an outward show of good deeds done with our hands, but that truly loving God and loving each other come from serving God and each other from the heart, that motivations matter. And so Jesus calls them to a holy reordering of their relationships to God and one another through acting in true love from pure hearts. Then Jesus turns to the self-righteous in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, to reorder their worship. That giving, praying, and fasting are not to show how great they are, but rather to show how great God is. Giving to show God as their greatest treasure. Praying to show God as their true provider and fasting to show God as their soul's sustenance, a reordered worship away from their glory to God's glory alone. And Jesus keeps going and reorders their treasures. In verses 19 through 24, to invest in his eternal kingdom that has no end and away from serving the false gods of money and earthly kingdoms that are fading. And in verses 25 through 34, Jesus reorders their trust. When the fears and anxieties of this world press down on them, reminding them that God is God, that he is their all-powerful, all-good, and all-loving Father, and he will provide for them as they trust him, a reordered trust. Then Jesus calls them in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, to a reordered humility away from self-righteous hypocrisy that's quick to judge and condemn the sins of others while downplaying or excusing the worst sin that's rampant in their own lives. And then in verse 7 through 11, Jesus reorders their desires, reminding them that as they pray, the same God who provides for their material needs is the same God that provides them with their greatest need, his spirit alive in them. And then on that hillside, Jesus stops. And before a stunned and silenced crowd, he has one final lesson. Verses 12 through 27. That now that they have heard about his true reordered kingdom of God, greater than all the kingdoms of this world, they have a choice to make. To trust him, to follow him, to live in his kingdom, or choose to walk away. He gives them a call to a reordered choice. So again, imagine being in the crowd that day, having a front row seat to hear this message, the greatest sermon ever preached. 
And the more he spoke, the more he amazed them all. The more their spirits burned in them, the more questions they had. And yet here at the end, a simple yet massive call, a choice to trust Jesus, enter into his kingdom, or turn away. And that was the choice for that crowd that day. But it's also the choice for all crowds, all days, including this crowd this day. So congrats. You just heard seven months and seven minutes. <laughs> okay. I wish we could get all our sermons down to seven minutes. All right. But after all these reordering calls, again, Jesus turns to those crowds and says those words we started with. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Hears and does. Jesus is saying it's not enough just to listen. It's not enough just to take notes, to nod along, to even be emotionally stirred if all that doesn't lead to action, to a step, to a choice. I shared this Sinclair Ferguson quote in the opening sermon in the series, uh, and seven months later, it's still true. So I'll share it again. He says this, Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to be admired for his homiletical or his preaching skills. He preached it to produce obedience. And it's much like the exhortation that James gave to the church when James wrote this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James is saying what Jesus is saying, that hearing the words is not enough, that wisdom is shown by what we do from there and the choice we make. And that choice is the difference between building a house on a rock or a house on the sand. So let's go back to chapter 7, verse 24, and read this parable one more time together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus shares this parable about two houses and two foundations. But to understand this parable, we actually need to understand four things about it. One, what, what, are, what is the house? Two, what is the storm? Three, what is the sand? And lastly, four, what is the rock? So let's start with what is the house, okay? Well, simply put, the house is our lives. That each one of us is building a life as if we're building a home. So Aaron and I just recently had some remodeling done work at our home. And if you've ever had any work done, you know that while you might have like one big project, it's actually a million little choices along the way. Uh, and that's the same way as building our lives. Every day, a thousand little choices we make on how we're going to live and who we're going to be. And at the end of it all, one life has been built. The house is our lives. But did you notice in the story that there are actually two houses and they are actually strikingly similar, maybe even identical to each other from an outside observer. 
but with one crucial difference, the foundation they are built on. And the foundation of if it will survive the coming storm. So the house is our lives. And what is the storm? Well, perhaps you've been around church for a while. You may have even heard a message preached from this passage before. uh, And it's been something to the effect of, hey, life is full of storms. Job loss, breakups, divorce, debt, addiction, sickness, whatever. And if you hear the words of God and do them, you'll make it through. So in other words, when the storms of life hit, follow the Bible and you'll be okay. Well, that's not what this passage is teaching. (laughs) Now, is it true for the believer that Jesus is with you throughout all those storms of life? Yes. And is it true that trusting in God's word will help you endure those storms of life? Yes. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? No. The storm here is not just the storms of the trials of life. No, this storm is the storm. The storm of God's holy judgment against sin, against evil, against the wickedness in the world. It is the storm of his final judgment. It's when our lives, our houses, are placed before a holy God to be held account, to account for how we lived. It's what the author of Hebrews was referring to when he said in chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is the fate of every person that we will be judged before God for how we live the life he gave us. The millions of house-building life choices we made will be the evidence in our life's trial before God, either for our acquittal or are for our conviction. Every word of our mouths, every motivation of our heart, every act of our hands to determine what we deserve, either the reward of a perfectly righteous life or the condemnation of a guilty life. It's the final judgment of our lives before God, the storm. And the idea of a storm as a picture of God's final judgment would have been known to the Jews in the crowd that day with Jesus. In the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, God's wrath is depicted as a storm. And in fact, in the book of Jeremiah, the wrath of God against evil is described this way. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has come forth. A whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. And when we see our verses today from uh, Matthew chapter 7, in the context of the whole of chapter 7, it's clear that the storm Jesus is speaking of is God's final judgment. It's that wide path, he said, that many take to destruction. It's that poison fruit of false teachers that leads to death and fire. And it's when Jesus warns us, In chapter 7, verse 22, that Milt preached a few weeks ago, where Jesus says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That day is the day of judgment. That day is the day of the storm. 
And so Jesus tells the crowd that when the storm comes, a house built on the rock will stand, but one on sand will not. So it begs the questions, what is the sand and what is the rock? Well, to understand what Jesus meant means by these foundations of sand and rock, we have to see how Jesus linked those foundations to how people responded to him and his teaching. Remember, Jesus said of the wise man who built his house on the rock that he was the person who heard his words and did them. And the foolish man building on sand did not. It all comes down to our response to Jesus's words. So what does it mean to like, do his words? Well, again, we remember throughout this whole series, it's not about performing to earn your way into God's kingdom. That the Sermon on the Mount is not how to live to get into the kingdom of God, but how those in the kingdom of God are to live. So Jesus is telling the crowds to hear my words and to do them is actually all about answering the question, do you trust me or not? Those that do will show it by following me, and those that don't trust me won't. Jesus is saying, you've all just heard my teaching. You've just heard what the kingdom of God is like and what living in it looks like. Now you have a choice to make. You either trust me or you don't, and you'll show that you trust me by building your life on me. And the crazy thing is, hear this for us, is that by trusting Jesus and following him, you aren't entering into the kingdom. You're showing that you're already there. Let me say that again. By trusting Jesus and following him, you're not entering into the kingdom. You're actually showing that you're already there. But conversely, Jesus says, but those who hear my words and say, nope, I won't do it. I don't trust you. That what you're saying, Jesus, is stupid. It's, it's archaic. It's too hard. It's too narrow-minded. It asks too much. I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want to let go of my dreams and plans. I, don't, I want to live life on my own terms for my own kingdoms. I want to build my life my way. Jesus says, they're saying, I don't trust you, Jesus. And so I'm not going to do what you say. And they are the foolish ones building their lives and their hopes on sand. They are outside his kingdom because they choose to be. Because the truth is, friends, whether we were, you know, listening to Jesus in that crowd that day or hearing his words in here today, we are all building our lives on something, some foundation. And we all know that a judgment is coming when our life is over, whether it's a judgment from God or even if you don't believe in that. You live and believe that a judgment at the end of our lives is coming, and it might simply be the judgment of our peers or the judgment of our legacy in the history book or simply the judgment of what's said by friends and family at our funeral. Something where at the end of our lives, we will be scrutinized. Our lives put into some form of scales and balances, and we're all living for that moment. Whatever judgment we imagine, hoping our lives will be shown to be enough, to be worthy, to justify our existence on the planet. We all live in light of a judgment, God's or each other's. So we seek to build foundations to build our lives on, foundations we think will survive those judgments, those storms. And it could be our achievements. That if we climb the corporate ladder, gain the biggest following, win the right awards, get into those social clubs, 
that when our lives are done and judgment is granted, we will pass the test. Or maybe it's in our comforts, that if we can get enough money or craft enough of an easy, carefree life, go on as many trips or vacations as we can, then at the end, we will know we are good enough. Or maybe at least everyone gathering for my life will believe I'm good enough. Or maybe it's trying to just live a good life, doing good things. And it could be living a good life as we define good ourselves, or it might be looking to how good of a Christian we can be, justifying ourselves at the end, playing church to prove our goodness, prove our worthiness. We are all building on a foundation we think will hold up our lives to judgment at the end. And Jesus is saying, you're right. There is judgment, but it's before a holy God who made you. And if you are building a life, you are building your life. All of us are some kind of foundation. But if it's not God and God alone, if it's anything else, it's just sand. And it won't survive. So what is sand? It's whatever foundation we are building our lives on that we hope makes us enough. Foundations where ultimately we're saying to God, I don't need you. I can do it myself. I can make myself enough. And it's soft and eroding and unstable and has less of a chance of saving us in the storm of God's judgment than a sandcastle has surviving a Category 5 hurricane. So what do we need? What do our fragile houses need to survive the storm of the final judgment? A better, truer, more solid foundation. We need rock. And what is the rock? It's the one speaking to the crowds. It's the one speaking to us today. It's the one and true saving king. It's Jesus. He is the storm withstander. And the foundation of the wise man who hears Jesus' words and does them. The one who listens to Jesus and maybe still has questions or even doubts or maybe even some trepidations, but the one who knows there's nowhere else to go. No one offers what Jesus offers. No foundation can hold us the way he can. So I want us to go back again and imagine that we're in that crowd again that day. And sitting there, Jesus has just said, a storm is coming. And to withstand it, you either trust me or you don't. It's your choice. And then he gets up and walks away. And you're sitting there, mouth open, heart racing, mind blown. What do you do in that moment? Do you get up, fold up your chair, go back home, back to your same life, back to building your home, on your house, on the foundation of sand, just hoping your life will be enough? Or do you get up and start walking with Jesus? You don't know where he's going. You don't even have all the answers to all the questions and all the doubts swirling in your head, but you go. Do you remember what it said at the end when Jesus finished teaching those last couple of verses? It says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That word astonished can be translated amazed, and it has this idea of ongoing wonder. They were astounded by his message, but also 
his authority. The crowds that day had an advantage that actually we don't. They got to be in the physical presence of Jesus and look him in the eyes he spoke to them. However, we have advantages over the crowds that day. We know exactly why we can trust Jesus as our rock. We know exactly why Jesus can protect us from the storm of God's judgment. We know something the crowds didn't know that day. We know the cross. We know that the same one who warned them that day of the storm would be the same one who would take the storm for them and for us in the days to come. That the reason our sinful lives lives can withstand the the storm of God's holy judgment is because we won't face him. He took the storm for us. That's what happened when our sinless Savior took our cross. God poured out the storm of his wrath against our sin onto his beloved son in our place. Jesus, our substitute, Jesus, our sacrifice, Jesus, our storm taker. On the cross, our king bought us entrance into his holy kingdom by becoming sin for us, satisfying God's justice against every evil thought, word, or action we've ever committed. Jesus became the curse of sin for us on the cross so we could receive the blessing of righteousness he earned. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes our punishment, we receive his reward. He takes our condemnation, we receive his acceptance. He takes our death, we receive his life. He is forsaken, and we are brought into the kingdom. He took the storm of our hell and gives us the kingdom of his heaven. No longer do we look to ourselves to be enough. Our achievements, our awards, our works of goodness, our sand. No, our foundation is not ourselves, but Jesus. His righteousness given to us, his work of saving us, his satisfying of the storm of God's judgment for us. We are only enough because he is enough, and our lives are found in him, our rock and our redeemer. There is no other foundation to build upon. That's what the Apostle Paul said when he said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Friends, we know the cross. And we know the resurrection. Our proof that our rock is sure, that the storm has passed for us, that our lives are forever redeemed, and that our citizenship in Christ's kingdom is secure because our Savior, our King, our storm taker is alive and victorious over sin and death, and we are alive forever with him. So, When someone hears these words of the gospel, of his cross, resurrection, and defeat of sin and death, when someone hears and does these words of Jesus by choosing to trust in his salvation by grace alone, what does that hearing and doing look like in someone's lives? Well, again, Apostle Paul helps us out, and he says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their 
sake died and was raised. No longer living for themselves, trusting in, following him, living for Jesus. That's what a reordered life looks like. Someone who hears my word and does it. Someone who has entered into Jesus' kingdom by turning to and trusting the king who died and rose again. The king who took the storm and triumphed over the grave. And the king who offers you a place in his forever kingdom today just by trusting in what he did for you to make a place for you. And lastly, who is this promise for? Who can turn and trust and be forgiven? Who can be made new? Who can be given a place in God's forever kingdom of grace? Well, one last time, let's look at our passage today, verse 24, and we don't have to get past the first word. Everyone. Everyone then who hears. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past or even your present. How many foundations of sand you've tried to build your life on. The invitation to know and follow Jesus is for everyone. The only prerequisite is surrender. Is trust. Is saying, Jesus, I need you. I've been living for my own kingdoms, trying to prove my worth on my own and living without God in my life. I need your grace. I need your storm-taking mercy. I trust you. You are my king. That's it. That's all you need is Jesus. Because just like for the crowd that day 2,000 years ago, Jesus is still on the move, pushing back the darkness and charging forth in his kingdom. Because the Sermon on the Mount isn't about how to live to get into the kingdom of God, but those in the, how uh, those in the kingdom of God are to live. Because the, the entrance into the kingdom is simply trust. Trust your king. Be reordered. Jesus changes everything. So as we conclude, let me ask you, what is your hope in the storm? What foundations are you building on and trusting in? Whose kingdom do you live for? Just like that crowd that day, let us hear these words and be astonished by Jesus. But more than that, let's be hearers and doers. Surrender to his grace. Build your life on his rock. Enter into his kingdom. Make your choice. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess you are holy. We confess we are here because, God, you are all-powerful and you made us and you gave every one of us life. And Lord, we also confess that life will be placed before you and that your word says there is no one righteous, no, not one. But Lord, we also confess that we don't have to have fear for that day and that judgment at the storm because Jesus came to rescue us. Our great king who preached this message is the king who took the cross, who took our storm for us, who rose again to new life and offers us his free grace just by trusting him. We thank you for the storm taker, Jesus. So I pray for us in this room right now. I pray for those watching online, those that know you, those that have trusted you, those that follow you. Lord, spirit, that you would move in us Convict us in what ways we're continuing to live for our own kingdoms or the kingdoms of this world, the ways we're still trying to fight to prove our worth and prove ourselves. 
And Lord, we would surrender those places to the kingdom of your grace and be reordered. And Lord, I pray in this room, because I know in this room they're there and watching online even, there are those in here that are still, came into this room building their lives on a foundation of sand, of their good deeds, of their works, of their accomplishments, of their businesses, of their uh, accolades, of their uh, schooling, whatever it is, Lord, that, Lord, you would convict them of the foundations of sand, and they would turn in faith and trust to the rock, Jesus, their hope and life in great King, and they would give themselves by grace through faith and trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of their storm taker, their King and Savior, Jesus. And Lord, as we turn our voices and hearts to you in song, Lord, I pray that you'll be honored by the words that we sing. You'll be honored by our hearts as we lift our voices up to the one who lived and died and rose again. And it's in his name we pray.